Happy Friday, Steve. How's it going, man? I'm doing really good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm just letting you know now if the UPS guy shows up while we're recording, shows over, and I'm out of here. <laughs> okay. Well, you got something <laughs> cool on the way to you? Yeah, my rifle's coming back. I had sent my Tika off to get a barrel swap, so it's uh, coming back, and I'm excited to get it, man. Cool. Heck yeah. Yeah. You put on you put on a proof barrel, right? I did, yeah. So I had the factory, um, I have the light stainless Tika T3X, and I was wanting to thread it for a suppressor, which is uh, in waiting as well, and hopefully will be soon. But that barrel profile is so thin, uh, it doesn't have the diameter needed to add the threading. <clears throat> My only option would be to cut it back a fair amount. Um, so it's actually easier and better in the long run just to swap to a barrel that's already threaded for it. So it's kind of a... Maybe good, quote-unquote, lesson learned if a, a suppressor or even a break is remotely something you're interested in. Maybe make sure that uh, you're getting a barrel that's ready for that in the first place, because I certainly didn't. All right. Um, got some more good questions, man, to chat through for sure. So thank you guys for sending these in. Uh, again, you can just send any question, topic, anything like that to podcast at exomountgear.com. Uh, before we dive into the questions, we did have a follow-up as well. You know, we mentioned and kind of talked the other day about packs for kids um, and actually had some good feedback from that. Uh, one of the guys said that for his son, who he started taking hunting with him, uh, his son was about 12 years old, and he he basically said kind of what we were talking about the other day. He wanted to make sure that his son was going to stick with it, and he was a bit young to fit into um, most true hunting packs. He went with um, a Kelty Sanitas 34, um, which I looked up. It looks like a really good, affordable pack that has good adjustability in it. So I just thought that that was good to throw out there because we didn't answer with any specifics. Um, and so it was good to have this feedback on maybe something to look at if you guys are in that position looking to, you know, shop for a kid that's maybe 10 or 12 or something like that. Nice. Yeah. I'll check that out. Yeah. Cool. Let's uh, let's dive into this first question. A good one to chat through. It says, do you guys prefer a single pin, a three pin, or a five pin archery sight and why? I switched back and forth between them, but just wanted your guys' input on what you think is the best option for a backcountry bow sight. Yeah. Um, easy answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, kind of easy. Kind uh, of for easy. me, it's a five pin. Yeah. Um, to me, there's no question at the range, controlled environment, all the time in the world to shoot and adjust and dial. A single pin is going to be consistently more accurate, uh, purely just because you have a simpler aperture to like focus on just one pin. It's in the middle of the housing. Uh, it's just nice and clean. Everything's centered, right? Um, you know, great visibility of the target with just a single pin in there. Um the problem is you get in a hunting situation and I guess I'm going to, this is Western hunting, right? Elk and mule deer. Uh, you get in a hunting situation, things change so fast. There's absolutely no question. You're going to, at some point, you know, in a, in a two to five year period, you, that single pin is going to cost you an animal. There's just, I don't care if you're mule deer hunting or elk hunting or, or what, there's just things change and happen so quick in that heat of the moment you need some flexibility there. Um, an elk comes in, you standing at 20 yards, you know, gets wind of you, runs out, whirls around, stop you stopping in with a cow call at 37 yards and your pin's still set at 20 and 
So you're trying to, you know, adjust a holdover or something like that. I think it can get really, really, really tricky. Um, not just having that pin set up. I've been with, uh, gosh, Jason, my buddy, Jason Wright. Um, he's, I think I've been with him twice. Um, where the, the basically a very similar situation happened to that. And he was, uh, he was dealing with a lot of target panic and I went to a single pin just to kind of like, keep things as simple as possible. Um, and, uh, and it costs some animals, you know, he's sitting there trying to like readjust to site. And so if you're adamant about a single pin, you better spend a lot of time like shooting hold and, and adjusting for holdover, you know, knowing that, um, like shoot at 35 yards with your pin set at 20 and figure out like how high do you need to hold over the dot? I think you'd have to get really, really good at that. Um, to, to make that work. <laughs> it's that's a tough one yeah it's i think you're just way better off to go with five and, and three being the minimum you know that covers you 20 30 40 and then and then the argument you know past 50 you need to be taking your time and you probably have like you know that few extra seconds to kind of slow down and dial might not be the end of the world might be a good thing for you um but in in elk hunting situations especially where things happen so fast and you're in the timber and shooting lanes come and go i, I think a single pin's just shooting yourself in the foot Hmm. Yeah, I mean, three pin is honestly my favorite. I've shot them all, anything from a single pin to a seven pin way back in the day. Um, and like you, single pin's great if you're just hitting bullseyes. It's awesome. Um, three pin's by far my favorite. But for me, depending on the country I'm hunting in, the five pin has a place um, just in more open country. So I, I, for me, it's partially dependent upon where am I hunting? What am I hunting? And I, I think the thing about three pin I really like is it's, it's simple enough. You don't have this cluttered view for me. It's much easier to process like subconsciously to process three pins and what those yardages are. And maybe it's just cause I've spent way more time with it, but I guess I shot three pin for years and years and then go into a five. Now it still feels a little bit like, Oh, I feel like I have to count pins or I feel like I have to, mm-hmm. you know, think about it. And then also on a three pin, something I always did was run all three pins a separate color. So it, I think helps like mentally reinforce, like I would always run green, yellow, red, um, in that order. And then the green and yellow, I'd run like a 019, the red, which would be the dial on a, a movable site. The last pin was a 010, so it had really nice precision for longer range. And I just love, to be honest with you, I love everything about that, um, except for thinking about those situations, which you just mentioned at the end there, Steve, of semi-quick-ish 50-plus yard shots, which I, in a perfect world, I'm totally with you. I think you're extending range beyond 40, 50 you should have some time to kind of process it. But sometimes there's also a difference between processing a shot, getting comfortable at full draw. Like you're still going through that to make sure you're making an ethical shot, but that doesn't necessarily mean you had the time or the ability to then dial as well. Um, so yeah, for me, it's hard because the three pins, I love everything about it, but I it, in more open country with potentials for longer shots, I can definitely see the, the usability increase in a five pin. I just, my, my brain doesn't like it as much. I don't, I don't prefer that side picture. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I get it. I mean, I think it's, it's super important. Um, 
to kind of pick something and stick with it. Uh, we talked about that the other day, right? I'm just getting super familiar um, with one thing and, and just have that. I think, you know, I think that pays off in the long run, right? Just knowing exactly how your equipment performs. Oh, that's right. We were just talking about, you know, different arrows for different animals and, and things like right. that, swipping, swapping them out and just like pick an arrow that's good for everything. Um, and you're going to be better off in the long run. So I think a site similar, if you've been shooting the three pin for years, um, and it works great for you, you know, I don't think there's any reason to change from that to a five or whatever, unless you're willing to put in, you know, a lot of time up front to, to shoot and, and practice year round, you know, mm-hmm. um, get, start shooting in January, shoot three days a week, uh, do a lot of 3d tournaments and by hunting season, you'd be pretty familiar with that. But heck, I remember when I first, uh, switched over to like a adjustable site, it took like two or three years to stop. Like I, you know, there'd just be the random, you'd forget to adjust the site and you'd, you'd shoot an arrow <laughs> to go five feet over the back of something, you know, um, it took a couple of years to get used to that. So it's, you know, those, those little changes, um, once you have something so programmed into your head, they're, they're hard to come by or get over. Yeah. Uh, another boat related question, separate, uh, email here. It says, can you guys clear up downhill and uphill shooting with a bow? And what effects to consider for those shots versus shooting on flat ground? Yeah, it's a really easy subject that'll, that people like don't understand and want to overcomplicate. Uphill, downhill, doesn't matter. You always shoot. The distance that you're shooting is less than what your, you know, if you drew a, a tape, grabbed a tape measure would tell you, right? So the, the easiest way to describe this is uh, if – Think of standing on a really steep hill and you look down, I mean, like really steep, like, you know, 30 degree slope. You look down at the base of a tree down there and you range it. It says, you know, and this is a range finder without angle compensation, right? It says 35 yards. Uh, if that tree is tall enough that the top of the tree is eye level with you, if you range straight across to that, it's going to say 21 yards. That 21 yards is the actual distance that you need to shoot for, not the 35. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reason being is gravity is only pulling, you know, that parallel to the earth straight down. Right. So you're, as far as gravity is concerned, your arrow is only traveling 21 yards. Um, and that's, that's as simple as it is. You just, uh, I remember we used to, back when I first started archery, we like, for some reason we said like, well, yeah you aim high when it's uphill and you aim low when it's downhill or so like we had some stupid theory that, you know, we're you're just dumb enough to like believe. And, um, but it's always, always, uh, the distance is shorter than what it looks like. So, um, the, the next subject, which he didn't really ask about, which comes into effect in this is third axis. Uh, and that one gets a lot more tricky to explain. Um, but basically if you're, if you're shooting on flat ground and you your bow is not level, right? So um, from limb tip to limb tip, like, you know, cam to cam, just straight line down. Um, if you can't that to the right, it's 60 yards. Your arrow will hit to the right. Um, you know, it, you know, if you can't that to the left, your arrow is going to hit to the left. So what happens, um, say you've set up, you've got your bow sight on there. You know, any quality sight's going to have a level on it. You've you know, you know, highly, highly, highly recommend to level at. And again, this is all to me. Third axis is very important. Dang near irrelevant under 40 yards. 
that's definitely under 30 yards. You're, you're not like an extreme cant in the bow. You might be talking an inch and a half to the right or something. And, and that's within, you know, just about anyone's shooting group. They would never notice the difference. Um, but, uh, so what happens, uh, so you, you've got your level, you're shooting on flat ground, it's level, you shoot, you know, you hit right where you're aiming. The second you go and shoot, point that bow up or down, um, the bubble can now lie to you and tell you that you think you're level, but you're not. And the reason being is that bubble is no longer perpendicular to your eyeball, um, to the, to the rest of the bow, to everything. Um, and that an easy way to describe that ish is if you grab a, like a three foot carpenter's level, hold that in your hand, um, you know, so lengthwise and, and get it level, but have the carpenter's level like canted at a 45 degree angle away from you so that the three inch wide part, you know, is canted away from you. Now just like, don't lean that left or right, keep it level, but pivot that down. And even though you didn't actually change anything, the bubble just purely because of gravity, you've got the fluid in there and the bubble, the bubble is going to rise up to the high side of that, right? And the fluid is going to sink down to the bottom. That's what's happening inside your bow sight when you aim up or downhill. If that bubble level is not perpendicular to basically to the movement, right? As you're, as you're pointing it up and down, mm-hmm. uh, the, the bubble needs to stay perpendicular to it. So, uh, so yeah, you aim, you're, you're, you have not adjusted for third axis. You aim uphill. The, the gravity takes over your bubbles lying to you. You can't, you adjust for the, what it's telling you. And now you're canting your bow right or left and you're going to miss right or left depending on the shot. So, um, it's yeah, it's a really hard subject. I did some, like, gosh, man, if it's ten years ago, I wrote a couple articles for Eastman's Bowhunting Journal about this, and um, you know, it's, it's a hard subject to like. It's so easy if someone's in front of me to yeah, show them, is, describe yeah. it to them, but to to write about it, to talk about it, it's not an easy thing. I did, I did a video too with um, Levi Day, and it was from Train to Hunt, quite a few years. It was probably ten years ago. Yeah, I wonder if uh, I could put that in the show notes or something. Levi came over and we talked about third axis, and I think it's actually a decent video going through everything that might, if someone's confused as all get out, might be worth going and watching. So yeah, yeah, I'll see if we can dig that out. When I think of third axis and like what you're saying with being uh, perpendicular, it it always is helpful for me, like an analogy. Um, maybe you guys think of this and then rewind what we just discussed, but like thinking of a hinge, like a door. Um, that picture of it like swinging in and out away from you as you're facing a door is like always helpful for me to like keep in mind, um, on that whole subject. And it kind of gives you some perspective on it. Yeah. And I guess the whole, um, to kind of go back and further confuse everybody, the whole reason that you have to adjust for this is because of every bow has some version of the cables getting pulled to the right um you know you've got a a cable slide a cable guard a roller guard whatever there's a lot of variations nowadays um and as you draw all that tension like your string at full draw doesn't have a lot of tension right Uh, it's pretty loose but all that tension's built up in the cables of the bow and they are pulled to the right which then just cants the entire bow um the the so the best way to verify this is if you ever like knock an arrow with your bow at rest and, and have it sitting on the, on the arrow rest. Um, and if it's not a fall away, like if it's cocked up, right. Um, 
like eyeball right down the string and right out to the tip of the arrow and don't like move your head or anything, but just simply like look at your sight pins. And if you're right-handed, they're always going to be out to the left of your arrow. And that's because basically when you come to full draw, the bow is then like canting and torquing to the right that now your pins are alive. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's what's going on. So truly a, like some of the, target bows are like shoot through designs uh where the cables are split like left and right and you actually put the arrow through the the cables um those are going to eliminate third axis and and from bow design to bow design the amount you have to adjust is going to vary um and quite a bit is what, what i've seen over the years some some need more some need less um and it has to be done uh it has to be done by the person who's shooting at and they have to be at full draw to adjust for this right because you can't you can't put this in a vice and set third axis that that doesn't work because you have no idea how much torque is being applied and it is the bow and it's also the shooter so however he's holding the bow uh gripping the bow applying torque to it it's going to vary um you know depending on on each person and so that's uh another reason you know a a big fat grip is going to promote more torque versus a nice narrow grip and um so there's a it's it's why a pro shop can't paper tune your bow right like you have to be the one shooting it through paper because you're gonna hold it and apply pressure differently than the than the archery tech shooting your bow so Mm. yeah i found i was able to get rid of all that right side torque um at full draw to my bow oh really yeah i'm just left-handed Oh, <laughs> I just have left side torque. You just have left side torque. Yeah, uh, I was like, "Wow, Matt, you created some magic product here." Mark. Uh, that's funny. Uh, all right, we'll move on from bows to bivvies. Uh, had an email said, "I'm interested in buying a bivvy. What do you guys recommend? What things should I look for or avoid?" And he was specifically—I didn't read the whole email, but he was talking about using it in context with a tarp um that's a great question yeah uh i don't there's not to be honest with you i'm actually sewed a a sample bivy sack that is sitting in my garage right now i found some fabric that i really liked and um just something i might play with and maybe it's an exo product two or three years down the road i don't know um because uh yeah there's um the probably the one that is the most impressive to me is your enlightened equipment bivy sack that you use mark um it's super light uh essentially just keeps bugs off of you and gives you a little bit of pad protection on the bottom um that's the jimmy's tarp one that i've used in the past uh, same deal uh, it's lots of mesh you need the mesh for breathability to reduce condensation on the inside um and with a tarp yeah it's it's a great um a great combination of you know sleep in the bivy and and if it's a nice clear night, don't even bother throwing the tarp out. And if it's going to rain, you throw the tarp out. That's so that's my preferred system that I've been using. Um, takes some getting used to, but it's it's you know awesome. But there's not, I don't think there's a whole ton of um, bivy sacks that are similar in style to that Enlightened Equipment, the Jimmy's Tarp one, out there on the market. I yeah. I'm not aware of many. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's important to know like that he mentioned he was looking for use with a tarp and that's what we're typically talking about unless as you said sometimes the weather's nice to get without it but there are the bivy sacks out there that are meant to be fully weatherproof right so like they offer the ability to have partial mesh but then this ability to like close it up and you're basically creating something that's weather tight essentially which those are going to be heavier and all that like uh blanked on the names but some of the outdoor research stuff for example um, they have those heavier, burlier yeah. bivvies. Yep. 
Um, something like you mentioned, Steve Mine, the Alighton Equipment Recon. You know, it's it's meant um, ideally to be used, obviously, in fair weather or with some other protection with it. it. A good portion of it's mesh, so you don't have, like, full weather protection. Some things I do like about it... Um, it can you can stake out the corners, which is nice. Um, there's tiny little stays in the corners, which give which give it a little bit of structure. It does have um, shock cord at the head and the foot end, and so if you're set up in a way where you have something overhead, or you, you could obviously rig it yourself with a tricking pole. But say you want to pull the mesh off of your face, or you want to pull the foot box off of your sleeping bag, you can do that. So it kind of has some quote-unquote features to it, but at the same time, it still is really, really simple, really light. Some of the things in general that I would look for, um, you know, in addition to what we discussed as well, is just look at entry. Um, so there's center zip options, there's side zip options. Some are going to have an extended zipper. Some are going to have a much shorter zipper. So that's just something to maybe consider as kind of that ease of use in terms of getting in and out. Um, obviously, sizing you know, some are going to come in a standard size, some are offered in a wide and a long, and so that's just uh, a pretty obvious consideration um, to make there. Uh, but yeah, man, the, the simpler the better for the most part when you're pairing that with a tarp. Um, you don't need to go with one of those super burly, um, full weatherproof bivvies if you're already planning on using a tarp when, when weather requires it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, we talked bows, we talked bibbies. Let's hit the third B of the day and talk about bull elk. An interesting Ooh, nice. question here, Steve. <laughs> what are ways to differentiate a human bugle from an elk bugle? This guy says, the area I'm looking at for archery season this year has a potential to have quite a few hunters. It has good access. So I'm wondering how I can differentiate between hearing humans bugling and hearing actual elk bugling. Man, to be honest with you, I am not, I am not good at this. Uh, <laughs> like sometimes it's so clearly a hunter that like oh, there's like there's some guys out there that can bugle really flipping well. Um, and you talk about like a little bit of wind in the trees, and you know they're kind of around the corner, so it's not like super clear. Um, it's freaking hard that, um, and I've been like. I uh, haven't been, um, I have been f- definitely been fooled by an actual bull, right? I heard a bugle. Oh, that's a freaking hunter. Mm-hmm. And then didn't take it serious. Right. And then like legit, I have like one, um, one bull that, I mean, it's sound, we just called him, um, oh, what the heck do we call him? Well, I was going to say flutie, but that was the, this was prior to that. Um, it sounded like a primos Wasn't old like- school, like terminator bugle right <laughs> yeah um and uh it was in this big meadow across the meadow and we just blew it off we and oh freaking hunter over there we we're all pissed we put our heads down and we started walking really fast and then literally walked 75 yards and there's a beautiful six point just staring at us right there we're like oh you know like it, i mean it would have been so freaking dead if we had taken it serious um and i've definitely ran into scenarios like that where it's like eh. and, and i've been with you know, um, I've been with a lot of experienced elk hunters that they, they can't always tell. I, I think they're better than I am at picking up certain things, but they can't always tell. Like, there's no way 
to if it's a you know someone who's really good with a read or even average and i said you have some not less than ideal conditions where you can't hear that well you can you can hear the high pitch right um that uh there's no way like you just 100 percent of the time are going to be right about this so my strategy is is i actually just really pay attention to the frequency and the movement of the sound right uh and to me that usually is like the glaring indicator if it's like you know, bugle and all of a sudden, meow, 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 you know, like, <laughs> okay, there's a hunter. Um, but you know, sometimes, um, gosh, going back to Doug Flutie, if, if anybody's listening, watch the born and raised series, the first year we hunted with him in Colorado, um, the whole Doug Flutie thing came from this, this guy was bugling, but his, like how he moved made absolutely no it was so random and bizarre that it had to have been the only conclusion we could come to is it had to have been an elk like there was no i mean we're sitting there bugling um back and i think it was trent bugling back which he's one of the better guys i've ever been around um and the, the guy was basically like I, I, the only thing, explanation i can have is he couldn't hear um because we could hear him and he just couldn't hear us because how he was moving, um, basically was moving away from us, uh, but not like come closer and then you go away. And I mean, it was just a very random thing. So again, I use that. Um, if you hear a bugle way off of the distance and you go, man, I think that's a hunter. And the next one you hear, it's that same bugle, but it's, you know, the distance cuts in half. That's a freaking elk, right? Like a hunter's not going to move that fast through the woods. Um, and then if they are, I can also also gauge by how fast they're responding because a, a bull is going to be more random unless they're really, really, really fired up or they're going to bugle right on top of you. Uh, but they're going to be more random, right? They're, they're going to sometimes respond immediately, sometimes not respond for 30 seconds, sometimes not respond for 10 minutes. Um, so that kind of gauges to me if we're dealing with a real elk or not. But again, I... Um, as a general rule, if I hear it, I take it pretty serious. Um, I don't hunt in areas I would say that are highly populated with other hunters. Typically it's backpacking in and we're trying to get away from people for that. So, um, yeah, it's a tough call. I think it's experience and having a good ear for certain frequencies and tones that some people are better than others, um, to kind of pick things apart in the, in the calling. But I said, I'm not good at it and I just use, um, use how they're moving. And then just sometimes there's telltale signs of, okay, that's a hunter. They're, they're going exactly, exactly by the playbook, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, such a great point on, like you said, how they're moving. That can be really helpful. I'm bad at this as well. I, one thing I have noticed is human bugles tend to try to sound perfect and yeah they might not be a perfect caller so there might be something like weird or odd about it but almost like in cadence it'll be very very consistent um and then just something to look for as well is like not like a this is where for like in my mind it can get hard but like some bulls just have like a lot of character to their bugle Mm -hmm. um you know, even thinking, I can't remember what we called that bull, Steve, and uh, when we were hunting in Idaho with Born and Raised, and I wasn't there the one day, and you guys got on a bull, and then you're like, oh, if we go find him again, and it was it was the first day I hunted, I think it was the first day I hunted with you guys, and like that night, we heard that bull, and the, all day, the guys kept saying, oh, if we hear this bull, you'll know because, and I forget, there was some like characteristic about his bugle, and we heard it that night, and it was like, 
sure thing. Like it was unique, <laughs> like had this character to it. Um, and so I just, I almost listen to that too. Like if it's not just like this perfect three note, perfect cadence, but there's more like character to it. Um, sometimes I'm like, oh, that sounds real, you know, like different in a, a, a very genuine way. But yeah, it can, it can mm-hmm. be tough, man. It can be really yeah. tough to get fooled. Yeah. And sometimes it's, like I said, there's, uh, I'd say the vast majority of the time it's, you know, I, I, maybe it's because we're backpacking more and, and there's just less pressure. Um, vast majority of the time it's like, yep, that's bull. Let's go. Um, and it, it's, it's fairly infrequent for us that, you know, maybe one out of 10 or even 20 bugles do we hear, do we then like question, gosh, is that another hunter? Um, it's, it's not super frequent. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not um, like every time you hear yeah. it, you're trying to make that decision. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I said if I was hunting somewhere that was more highly populated with other hunters, um, yeah, I don't know if you'd do anything different or not. I, I think a lot of, if you're in an area with a lot of hunting pressure, just shutting up and moving through the woods quietly and letting people push elk around isn't a bad strategy to go with. Nice. Well, Steve, it's Friday. Made it through another uh, crazy quarantine week here. Um yeah. yeah weird times <laughs> yep <laughs> one uh, uh one idea i had last night was I probably shouldn't even throw this out yet but i've got all these freaking boots piled up i was thinking about throwing them in a box and anyone else who's 11 and a half like send these things around um, yeah have like a box and just pass it like you know find 20 guys that are willing to to hike it with a different pair every two days and we could get like this cumulative um kind of shoe review i think it'd be kind of fun so yeah Anyone out there is 11 and a half. Don't reach out yet because we won't get overwhelmed with emails. But yeah, um, think about it. It'd be think something cool if you, if you got the time and capacity and we'll let you know. I think it'd be uh, kind of cool. Have you know 10 to 15 pairs of boots. Just throw them in one big box and send it to a dude. He has it for a week or two. Send it to the next dude and, and just kind of and then have like a detailed uh, like pros and cons, rate traction, rate you know, perceived build quality and kind of have this at the end of it, um, maybe narrow down, you know, three or four winners, uh, that people could then go and pick from. Right. Yeah. It'd be cool to like kind of standardize the, the feedback or a form, like for each boot you like, okay, here, like say fit or comfort traction, like hit all those things, but for each boot. And so you could kind of have like some analytical data from person to person to look at. That'd be neat. Yeah, I think it'd be kind of cool. So that might be a good little quarantine project here. We might have to like come up with a disinfecting protocol for him between hand. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if that can... counts as social distancing if we're all sharing boots or how that works. <laughs> uh, that'd be funny. Yeah, cool. Well, have a good weekend, uh, Steve. Have a good weekend, listeners, and we will catch you next week. Don't forget if you got any questions, topics, anything like that, just send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. dot